Hi. Good morning. Well, we are uh, in the third week of a series and really a conversation about the Bible. And as we've said in the last couple of weeks, we haven't done this before as a community. We haven't had an actual conversation about what we do every week. We just heard a really long reading from John 9. Well done, Kathy, wherever you are. Uh, really, really intriguing story. Too much, too much going on there. Um, but well done for all of you as well, listening uh, through that. So we're having a conversation uh, about Scripture, and there's this prayer I found that's from the Book of Common Prayer. It's a collect, uh, or collect, like we often pray every morning. And every time I would pray this or read this in, in these last couple months, uh, I always would say it to myself in an Irish accent. Um, I'm wondering, is there anyone here with an Irish accent that could lead us in this prayer? Actually, Mike DeBoer, no, you don't count. Any, anyone actually? What about like a Aussie or New Zealand? Any New Zealander? Yeah? Okay, oh, there you, oh, you're right here. I was going to do it, but then it would feel like bragging because... I'm pretty good at accents, and I, that could lead to like voice acting work, and I'm too busy. I don't need that. So could you, let, could you open us in prayer just being yourself, but we'll enjoy your accent as well. Okay, good. Yeah? yeah. Cool. <laughs> this is weird. All right. <clears throat> Blessed Lord, who caused, caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant me so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that I may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I liked Mark. That was... My favorite part. Okay, so where have we been? First week, we looked at what is the Bible. Uh, last week, we looked at what is the Bible for, and this week, we're going to look at what does the Bible mean, uh, specifically the Old Testament, and specifically like the gnarly bits. That the and by that we're talking violence and. The really some strange cultural bizarre laws that are hard to know. What do I do with that now? So we're looking at the Old Testament. How do you read the Bible? If, if you do, there's no assumption there, but how, how, how do you read it or how have you read it? Do you read it literally? This seems often to be, there's an argument around even that word. Do, do you read it literally? Yeah, I read it literally. Oh, I, I don't read it literally. Are you part of a church that reads it literally? No, I'm not. We read it more metaphorically. And, it, and it's interesting how the debate for many kind of comes around that question. Do you read it literally? Because then if you do, you're often accused of not believing in dinosaurs and believing that God made the world in six literal days, 6,000 years ago. So if you believe the Bible literally, the story says, well, then you don't believe in science but then you say, no, I don't. I read it more metaphorically or spiritually. Um, and if you're in that camp, you're often accused of uh, not actually even believing the Bible, right? Like, oh, well, then you just don't believe the Bible then. That's very clear. 
Have you been a part of these kinds of conversations? That word, for some reason, is often what it hangs on, literally hangs on. Much of the debate has to do with what you think the Bible is and what you think it's for, as we've looked at, and, and, then, and that determines how you will read it. Well, I think a better question before starting with, like, do you read it literally or not, would be to say, well, how did Jesus read it? How does Jesus read the scriptures? You can go, well, can we even know that? Yeah, we can. Matthew 5, let's go there uh, together. Page 678, Matthew 5 and verse 21. Matthew 5, verse 21, page 678 in those chair Bibles. So this is in Jesus' well-known Sermon on the Mount. And he's just warming up here. This is chapter 5. And uh, starting in verse 1, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago. So what's happening? Jesus is quoting Scripture. And he carries on. He says, You shall not murder. Now, what's Jesus doing? Now, he's interpreting Scripture. So he's quoted it. Now he's interpreting it. He carries on. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus then goes on five more times with this little, very subtle, but massive phrase. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So what's going on? Jesus is calling out all sorts of popular readings and misreadings of the Bible in his first century Jewish world. So he's calling out stuff on marriage, stuff on divorce, stuff on sexuality, on military violence. And here's what we need to see. Jesus sees the Bible as something that is in need of constant engagement, debate and dialogue, reading and rereading and rethinking from the ground up. There's no sense with Jesus that the the interpretation or the understanding is fixed, that the cement is dried. Now, do you know this bumper sticker or or some version of it? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Yeah? Who's got that tattoo? Come on. I want to know. Okay, Ian. God God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Now, I'd want to say first off, with all due respect, I think... I think that's actually a non-Jesus way of approaching Scripture. Why? Well, as we've just seen, Jesus doesn't engage that way with the Bible. It's also naive. Well, why? Because nobody actually does this. No one does this. First of all, you can't do it because the Bible wasn't even written in English. So you would have to at least do some sort of interpretation just to get it into your language. So if we're going to be really accurate, it'd have to be something like, God said it, I can't read it, because it's in an ancient Hebrew and Greek and a little bit of Aramaic, and those are really hard. <laughs> that, and that would at least be honest. But even then, there's a bit of interpretation that's needed to get from that language into your language. So you can't really say, God said it, I believe it. You have to say something else. And once you read it in your own language, you might have to do some work to find out what's really going on in this ancient cultural context. So, for example, there's this uh, Near Eastern context uh, for the Old Testament and this custom where where you'd, to make an oath with another person, 
a man would put his hand under another man's thigh, kind of a, a, a hamstring type of grab. <laughs> and so this is, a, this is a handshake of sorts, uh, just with, with the hamstrings. I, I think it would probably be called a hamshake, but don't <laughs> quote me. Um, so what does this mean? Well, you know, like the, this, you, you read this, you go, that's a really strange way. And so for Peter Mogan, who's finalizing some real estate deal, it, it, you know, you wouldn't go. Like, I take the Bible literally. So, okay, we've got the paperwork finalized. The property is almost yours. I just need you to sign here and grab here. <laughs> He's like, no. So what we're talking about here is something called hermeneutics. This is the art and the science of interpreting the Bible. Real simple way of seeing this is the following. You've got translation or revelation. What does the text say? in its original language. There's a lot of work to, to answer that question. Second, then, is interpretation. Well, what does that mean? What does the text mean? And then third, application. How do we live this text out? Now, the problem often with um, fundamentalist readings of the Bible, they tend to blur the lines between the first two, between revelation and interpretation. And so it'll go something like, well, the Bible says, biblical quote, and I believe the Bible. And then it's kind of like, mic drop, conversation over. I don't know if you've been in these kinds of conversations, but where you've thought, yeah, well, I believe the Bible too, but I don't think that's what it means. And so what you're doing in that moment is you're, you're having difficulty on the second part. You're having a different interpretation and the problem is, for fundamentalist readings, that they can't, or worse, will refuse to distinguish between the first two, and they lump them together, between what the text says and his or her reading of the text. And it's really important to see Jesus isn't a fundamentalist. He doesn't engage Scripture this way. And it's also important to, see, to keep those separate, because when we question the interpretation, we're not questioning God. We're not questioning God's word. Do you remember a couple weeks ago, the, the Jewish understanding of Scripture? Uh, this Jewish theologian said, well, you Christians see Scripture as something to be proclaimed. We Jews see, or you see it as a message to be proclaimed. We see it as a problem to be wrestled with or to be struggled with. And so that's where a lot of the struggle happens is interpretation. So that's a lengthy yet kind of basic intro to hermeneutics. But I think this is really important to see that indivisible, invisible thing, that interpretation piece. And, and when you're around the table at Thanksgiving and the Bible comes up and there's arguments around how you understand Scripture, usually what's happening is those first two are getting clumped together and you're not able to separate them or, or you're disagreeing about that middle piece. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the person you're arguing with does not also love Scripture. I think this helps us to be uh, more charitable, more kind um, debaters. We know how to handle difference in this way. So with that in the background, let's come to the Old Testament. Now, I'm guessing if we did a survey this morning about some of your biggest problems with Scripture or some of your biggest questions on Scripture, it's going to be in that first two-thirds in the Old Testament what is going on here? Why are the, what are these strange stories about? So questions might be something like, I feel safe in the New Testament. 
I like Jesus, but the Old Testament God scares me. Or I read that and it's just straight Game of Thrones. And I don't, I just don't know what to do with it. Or maybe even, is the Old Testament God different from the God in the New Testament? So many people have thought this and even said it. And there's, there's a, actually an early church theologian, Marcion, who claimed that the Old Testament God was different. He ended up getting thrown out of the church as a heretic. So no, the, they're not different. But uh, we have a lot of questions, a lot of questions about the Old Testament and how to read it. Like just a real cursory glance. What do I do about all the blood and the wrath and the genocide and the incest and the animal killing and the polygamy and those weird laws? That's just, a, just to name a few. What do I do with this stuff? And when Nelson was teaching, which I didn't get to be here for, but I read his notes and it looked amazing. When Nelson's teaching on a text that all scripture is God-breathed, there's times when you're in the Old Testament, you go, all, all scripture, all scripture is God breathed this stuff? So you've got lots of questions, which makes me think of Dr. Laura. I don't know if you ever, this was in the 90s, so some of you were just being born, I think around that time, but Dr. Laura Schlesinger, anyone ever heard of her? Okay. Yeah, so Dr. Laura had his radio talk show. She was a Jewish uh, talk show host, and people would call in all the time, and she'd give practical advice on parenting and marriage and relationships and ethical dilemmas out of the Old Testament. Um, and this person wrote an open letter to Dr. Laura. I'm just going to read you parts of this open letter. This thing is dripping with sarcasm and cynicism. Dear Dr. Laura, Oh, okay, I'm going to have a hard time not laughing through some of this. Thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I've learned a great deal from your show, and I try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. I do need some advice for you, from you, however, regarding some of the specific laws and how to follow them. First, I would like to sell my daughter into slavery, sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? Two, I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly states he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself? <laughs> Leviticus 21.20 states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20 or is there some wiggle room here? I know Leviticus 11.6.8 says that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean, but may I still play football if I wear gloves. <laughs> and I, I know that you've studied these things extensively, so I'm confident that you can help. Thank you again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging, your devoted disciple and adoring fan. Dripping with sarcasm and cynicism, and maybe that even irks you hearing somebody talk about scripture that way, but it raises a question, what do we do with some of those laws? Or as I like to say, the gnarly bits. What do we do with that kind of stuff? Uh, too, way too much going on in the Old Testament to fit into one sermon. I think I had seven points and then I whittled it down to five and now I've got down to three. Two short ones and one longer one. Um, three books who say this way better than I could. I just want to commend to you. They're on, on the website, but... This is, I think, a really good uh, entry level into hermeneutics called The Blue Parakeet, Rethinking How You Read the Bible by Scott McKnight. 
Uh, I really appreciate McKnight because he's very Jesus-centered. Um, so this is a helpful book. Next one is Surprised by Scripture by N.T. Wright. I had a New Testament teacher who said, you know, N.T. Wright is always right because he's N.T. Wright. And that's, that's the extent of, like, biblical scholar humor right there. Um, <laughs> And then the third one is, by Pete ends, the Bible tells me so, why defending scripture has made us unable to read it. So particularly that last one, some really interesting stuff. Uh, If you've ever been troubled by violence in the Old Testament, uh, some really interesting stuff. Not all that I agree with, some of it's unsettling, some of it's really energizing, but I commend those to you. So a few uh, quick points on, I hope what will be helpful in how we come to the Old Testament and knowing what does this even mean. First, first thing is, the, the Old Testament is for us, not to us. It's for us, not to us. So in the Bible, we read of encounters with God by ancient people in their times and their places, asking their questions expressed in their ancient languages and ideas and familiar to them. So this means, if it's for us but not necessarily to us, it means we're listening in. On a tradition, which means humility is needed to understand the Old Testament. You gotta, you gotta come in low, like you do if you ever wanna learn another culture or its traditions. You don't come in swaggering, saying, You're gonna meet me on my terms. You come in going, Ah, oh, I don't get this at all. You come in low. You have to stand under to understand. So uh, when I was 20, at that point in my life, I'd lived in two places, Alberta and Texas. So how diverse do you think my diet was? Right? And then I made really close friends with Jacob and Misuk. And Misuk loved to cook Korean food. And they were teaching me Korean. And they, I went over probably once a week for Korean food. Now, if I came in with some Albertan slash Texan swagger saying, where's my fries? Where's my mayo? I never talked like that, but um, you know, if I came in with that kind of swagger, I would have missed out on mandu and kimchi and kolbi. Uh, so you come in low. You realize this, this, isn't, this isn't my culture, but I'm going to come in low to learn. So that's the first thing. The Old Testament is for us, not to us. Second, the Old Testament is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is really, really simple and important, but Here's the thing, just because the Bible conveys something, it does not mean it condones it. There's a lot of gruesome acts in the Bible which are not a license for you to quote-unquote be biblical. If the Bible shows you something from Israel's history, it's not sanctioning, sanctioning it for yours. And this is really important. Why? Because there's a long history of people thinking the Old Testament's descriptive, especially for indigenous rights in Canada. This is where the idea of manifest destiny comes from, the ideology in the 1800s that drew from the language and the imagery of the Old Testament, particularly the conquest of Canaan and Joshua. And this fueled a sense for Europeans coming over to take the land. And so if the Europeans are coming to North America and North America is the promised land and the Europeans are Israel, then who does that make aboriginals? Canaanites. So what happens to their land? Well, it gets taken. 
And what happens to them and their culture? Well, it gets stolen. And what actually happens to them? Well, they get wiped out or nearly wiped out. Why? Because of a way of reading Old Testament scripture that thinks it's descriptive, giving us license to do this as European people. So it's, it's descriptive. Sorry, it's thinking that it's prescriptive. It's, it's descriptive. It shows us the depth of humanity's darkness, not for something for us to imitate, but to reveal God's, the depth of God's faithfulness and his ability to redeem and work with people this depraved. Third thing, the Old Testament is to be read backwards. Now, this point is going to be a little longer. So if you're like, oh, third point already is uncharacteristic for Lance. You're really <laughs> wrapping it up quick. Psych. Okay, so <laughs> point three, Old Testament is to be read backwards. Now, there, it seemed like a, a while ago there was a rash of movies that did this kind of unseen ending, the surprise ending. I'm thinking of uh, Shawshank Redemption, The Sixth Sense, Fight Club, any others you can think of where it had that twist? Memento. Who said that one? You're a genius. That, yes. <laughs> that's, actually, that's the best one of them all. Okay, no one say anything because that's the best one. Memento is, is a perfect example. If you've ever experienced these films or just let's just say you've read a novel. Hopefully you've been able to do that. Uh, First time you're viewing the story or you're reading the story, it hits you as the plot unfolds, as you experience the characters, as the story moves along. And then you arrive at the climax of the story. And now you're seeing the whole thing in a new light. Oh, Bruce Willis was dead this whole time? Oh, that changes the story. And the end of the story then doesn't render everything in front of it as void or meaningless or something you scrap. You go, you, you never say, oh, I just wish I would have watched like that last five minutes. You never say that. No. It's really important for how the story develops. Be, why? Because it's taking you somewhere. And once, where you, once you see where the story winds up, you read it again in a new light. You read it backwards. Memento, and that's why Memento is so good. You read it backwards. You don't judge the Lord of the Rings like chapter one of Two Towers. You go, ah, pff, too long, done. No, hang on. You hang on till the end. You've you got to read it backwards. So let's do that. Let's read backwards. Let's start in Numbers 15. Let's turn there together, page 103. This is in the Torah. Numbers 15, verse 32. While the Israelites were in the wilderness, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly. And they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. Now this is one of those gnarly bits. This is one of those problem texts. 
And if you're reading through the Bible, if you, if you have a reading plan or there's, you have some sort of devotional practice and you come across this on a Tuesday morning with your coffee and you've got a journal open, what do you write after this? What kind of warm devotional thoughts pour out of your heart onto the page after you read, and so they stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses? It's one of those hard parts. Let's move on. John 5. Let's go to John 5, page 742. I'm going to tell you what happens in the first eight verses or or so. Um, Jesus meets a guy. He's been paralyzed for 38 years. And he tells the guy to take up his bed and to walk, to take up his mat. This man is healed. He takes up his bed and heads for home. Problem is, this was on the Sabbath. And so the guy gets busted for breaking Sabbath. And when the Jewish leaders, those who are really into the Bible, the Torah enthusiasts, find out that it was Jesus who was behind all of this Sabbath breaking. They're prepared to kill Jesus, like Moses did in the Bible. And John concludes the story like this. This is verse uh, 16. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he's even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, what do we have here? In Numbers, we've got a guy who gets caught picking up sticks on the Sabbath, on a Saturday, and is killed. Capital punishment, stoned to death. And the text tells us that God instructed Moses to do this. Moses says, God told me to kill this Sabbath breaker. And now we've got Jesus in the context of killing Sabbath breakers. He says that he only does what he sees his father doing. And later on in the text, in in 19 to 21, he says this, the father raises the dead and gives them life. So according to Jesus, his father doesn't kill, his father gives life. Now, do you feel that tension? In Numbers, a guy is stoned to death for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. In John, Jesus heals a guy and tells him to carry his bed to do work on the Sabbath. So what do you do? I got Numbers and I got John. How do I read this? What does this mean? Well, in the prologue to John's gospel, it says this. The Torah was given by Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God who is near the Father's heart. He has made him known. We want to say, whoa, 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 John. What do you mean no one has ever seen God? A lot of people have seen God. Abraham saw God. Moses saw God on Mount Sinai. Isaiah saw God in the temple. Ezekiel saw God by the river Shebar too, which John would probably say something like, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But no matter what dreams, visions, epiphanies, revelations people have had in the past, compared to the revelation of God we now have in Jesus Christ, no one has seen God. He stands his ground, doesn't even compare. 
Now, the Bible is not the full revelation of God. Jesus is. You go, what? What? I hear him right? The Bible is not the full revelation of God. Jesus is. This is what John means when he dares to say, no one has seen God. It's Jesus who fully reveals God. We have this in Hebrews. I don't think I have it on the screen, but I'll read it to you. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. So if we're going to talk about what stance, say, we should have on uh, the death penalty, you can't just cite the Torah. See, the Torah endorses stoning Sabbath breakers. Jesus doesn't. The Torah endorses stoning adulterers. Jesus doesn't. Moses thought God wants us to kill Sabbath breakers. Jesus said his father gives life to the dead. The Torah came by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the full revelation of the father. Or as Brian Zan says, I really like this. Jesus is what God has to say. So does that mean then we just ditch the Old Testament? Not at all. Hebrew scripture is inspired. The scriptures are inspired telling of Israel coming to know the living God. But the story doesn't stop until we get to Jesus. So why? What does this mean? Well, it means I don't have to pretend that Jesus endorses every depiction of God found in the Old Testament because Jesus doesn't. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you. So if we could ask Jesus what he thinks, if he thinks that God told Moses to kill people who pick up sticks on the Sabbath, I think Jesus would say something like, I only do what I see my father doing. My father gives life to the dead. Go, ah, okay, that's one story. I'm not sure about that way of reading the scripture, reading it backwards there. One other story out of Mark 9. You may know this story. This is the story of the transfiguration where there's a little bit of mountain climbing going on there on the mountain of Tabor. And there's a strange appearance of Moses and Elijah. These are two mighty figures from the Old Testament. And in many ways, they're representative of the Old Testament. You've got Moses as a bringer of law, and you've got Elijah standing for the prophets. And you've got Jesus. And so what happens on this mountain is this weird transfer where the old witness or the Old Testament yields to the new witness or the New Testament. But Peter sees these three there and he totally misunderstands what's going on. Uh, He sees Moses and he sees Elijah and he's immediately thinking structures. Let's build some tabernacles. Well, let's just stay here because it's really great to see you, Jesus, in all your glory. Plus, we've got Moses and Elijah. Let's make this permanent. Okay, let's get some housing. We build a couple little uh, shacks and you guys can just hang. Stay here. Peter's first impulse is off because he's treating Moses, Elijah, and Jesus as equals. And he receives a really strong rebuke. This voice from heaven says, no, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
Now, this is interesting because it's happening on a mountain where, which is the place often of divine revelation. It's a place where God, uh, not the same mountain, but on another mountain where God gave his commandments, the Ten Commandments. So here God's not giving new commandments. But in a way, it's like there's a new Torah being given here. Jesus is God's new Torah. In the presence of Moses and Elijah, God's saying, listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus is my true living word. Jesus is what the Old Testament was trying to say but couldn't fully articulate. Jesus is the perfect word of God in the form of a human life. God couldn't say all that he wanted to say in the form of a book, so he said it in the form of a person in Jesus. The word didn't become a book and move into a library. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. So this is, we're doing a lot of theology this morning. But the Old Testament is not on par with Jesus. The Bible is not a flat text where every passage carries the same weight. In our Anabaptist tradition, this is really key. It's not a flat Bible. We prize the words of Jesus, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a flat text. This is why Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. When we try and have the Old Testament having equal authority with Jesus, God says, no, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So if Moses says to practice capital punishment, to stone adulterers and other sinners, God says, listen to Jesus. And Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And if Elijah calls down fire from heaven to burn up his enemies, God says, no, listen to Jesus. And Jesus says, love your enemies. Moses says this, Elijah does that. Jesus says and does something completely new and different. And God says, listen to my son. If you want to rummage around the Old Testament and drag out Moses and drag out Elijah and Joshua and David to try and balance things out, if, if, you, wanna, if you wanna get biblical, you can find verses to uphold violent retribution and slavery and holding women as property and conquest. You can do that. And you could quote unquote be biblical. You can find a verse. But in the light of Christ, what was acceptable in the light of Moses and Elijah is now rejected because in the light of Jesus, we see this. A voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So this final testimony of Moses and Elijah is to recede to the background so that Jesus stands alone as the full word of God. Theologians would say Jesus is the hermeneutical center of the Bible. Or we could say Jesus is God's new Torah. Or we could say Jesus is what God has to say. And this matters because when we read the hard, troubling parts of Scripture, we need to know how to read backwards. We need to know, well, what has Jesus shown us? What has Jesus revealed to us? Well, that's a lot of theology for one morning. That's just three points on how to uh, read the Old Testament. As, as we close, I want to just share something that seems really simple, but as I was preparing, I, I sensed uh, 
from the Holy Spirit, you may say, well, that's not from the Holy Spirit. I may be wrong. That's okay. But I sensed the invitation this morning that like, the, whole, the whole shape of the Old Testament, if we were to sum, summarize it, we could say the Old Testament reveals a God who meets people where they are to move them forward. God is so humble with people, and he enters their culture and some really bizarre thinking in the Iron Age, particularly. So if we were to summarize how the Old Testament works, I think it's how, actually how God works. It's, it actually reveals God's character. God meets people where they are to move them forward. And I sense this morning there could be an invitation, uh, and this might just be for me, but God's desire to meet you where you are and to move you forward. It could be something you've been saying no to for a long time. Your heels are in. Or the sense that you're in the current and you're clutching some roots on the river edge. Yeah, I'm not moving. I'm not moving forward. And God wants to move, meet you where you are and move you forward. It may be that you're stuck in, in the fact that you've heard a lot of things. Just as Jesus said, you have heard it said. So you've heard a lot. And you've got this calcified cynicism and this built-up bias against God or maybe even against the Bible. And so you have this sense like, I've already heard it all. The, the opportunity for a fresh intrusion uh, by God's word and spirit to say, can I say something to you? You've heard it said. I know you've heard it all. But I, Jesus, the living, resurrected Lord of history, saying, I say unto you, can I move you from where you are? Artisan church, where we are now. Can we move forward? And as individuals, can God move us forward? So I think that invitation stands this morning. I have no idea what that would mean for each of us. I have a sense of what that means for me this morning, that God meets us where we are to move us forward. Why don't we stand and we'll come to the table and uh, I'll lead us in a short prayer. God, we thank you for your wild words and the history of scripture. I thank you for uh, sermons that cannot encapsulate all that you want to say, but we do want to follow this morning in this command. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So for those of us who have not been into that for various reasons, we pray for mercy and grace and even the slightest crack of an opening to being willing to listen. For those of us who are stuck on what we've heard said over and over and over, pray by your spirit for a fresh intrusion of what you want to say to us. Thank you for that word, I say unto you, I say to you. Thank you that you're so personal. And we pray this morning that there'd be a sense of being addressed by you. No hype, not conjuring, just openness and humility before you. What do you want to say? Would you bring a fresh word this morning as we meet you at this table? And we thank you that, Jesus, you are what God has to say.